0: Well, good morning again, church. Glad to be here with you this morning. Hope you are all doing well. Um, My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here at Disciples Church. Uh, Whenever Josh gets to get a break, which doesn't happen often, uh, I typically am the one blessed to be able to fill in for him. Uh, so uh, it was my joy to uh, step in and to prepare to lead us this morning so Pastor Joshua could have a, a break for a week, some, some time away that was good for him and his family. Um, if you will uh, join me in prayer, uh, and then we'll dig in, I would appreciate that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day again that you have made. Uh, thank you for life, for your mercy, for your grace, for your wrath. I thank you, Lord, for all that you are, all that you do for us. I pray, Lord, that our testimonies would be a bright light, that we would be a part of you taking someone who is dead in their sin and bringing them to newness of life in Christ. I pray that our time this morning as we dig into your word would be edifying, uh, that you would be sanctifying your people through your word, through our time, and that all of this would bring you much glory as we aim to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Proverbs. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, I can't encourage you enough to have one out uh, during the preaching, during any time someone is teaching from the Word. Um, Proverbs is a literary genre called wisdom literature. It's meant to be read and understood as wisdom literature, which would be different than the way you would read the Gospels, for example, or the epistles to the church. The thing that I really enjoy about Proverbs is that um, you have a lot of very practical application to the wise sayings that fill up the book. Um, They prove true as all of God's Word proves true over and over again. I regularly have encouraged our youth and the men that I disciple to read a chapter of Proverbs every day. Uh, It just so happens that there are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, and most months we'll have that 31 days to read through it. On This uh, regular reading over and over again of Proverbs, the unique thing about that wisdom literature is that you you gain a greater understanding every single time. Uh, If you read this book uh, every month for 12 months, The next year, you will still learn from it. Uh, So it's a really neat type of literature, wisdom literature is. Um, However, when you are considering the genre of literature as you read Scripture, it's important to understand what it is, or you can make false assumptions or false interpretations of what that means. Um, As a practical example of the difference between reading wisdom literature and other genres of Scripture, Consider Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This type of wisdom literature is often misunderstood as a promise from Scripture. Not only is it often misunderstood, but it's often misapplied. When you read wisdom literature and you interpret it accordingly— you realize you have to be careful to not apply this uh, as if it were a promise when it's not intended to be so. You also have to consider that the wisdom of this passage applies to both the positive and the negative. That's something that's really unique about wisdom literature. You're always learning two sides for every statement that's given. No faithful Christian can assure themselves That if they raise up their child in all the beautiful truths of God, the discipline and instruction of the Lord, that their child will be saved and be believers, living out those truths when they are old. That's simply something that you cannot do. As wisdom literature goes, it is much more likely that your children will remember those truths, but this doesn't promise them faith. When I heard this verse growing up, Um, It it was something that I heard from my parents a lot. We're just going to keep doing it because the Lord promises that he'll save you if we do. Well, that's a a false understanding of the passage. And if the Lord hadn't granted me faith, that might really be letting my folks down. right? It, It causes them to not have a trust in God's Word. But that would have been a mistrust through their own misunderstanding. As Scripture declares, God's Word always attains what it aims to attain. Genre of literature in Isaiah is not wisdom, genre. Rather, this is historical and prophetic. Therefore, this truth can be taken as a promise. God is promising in this passage that His Word will always, always accomplish His purposes. It never, ever fails. When you study certain literary types of books from Scripture, it is vital that you consider the genre. Otherwise, it leads to all sorts of improper um, exegesis from that passage. You don't interpret it correctly. Considering our passage in Proverbs, it is rightly explaining this. The way that you raise up your children will most often be the way that they will go as they get older. It is not meant to promise something, but it is meant to be more broadly applied in a general sense. So considering that, if you raise up a child... In a home full of anger and sin and violence, you should know that it is most likely the way that your child will go when they are older. They have been raised up with anger and sin and violence, and so they will not soon depart from that. Or, if you raise up your child in the wisdom, the discipline, the instruction of the Lord, even if they are not saved, those things will ring true in their minds. The Lord will use that in their minds down the road they will know those truths even if they deny the god who declares them right and so the way in which you raise your child will have a lasting effect on them and it's not likely that they will depart from those things as they become older so this can be a warning <coughs> excuse me a warning against poor parenting or absent parenting right or it can be an encouragement to raise your children in the wisdom and discipline of God because it will be better for them in their future. So you have the positive and the negative. And I hope that small example is helpful for you. Uh, Now, before we turn to our chapter that I'm going to primarily focus on today, I want to take you to my favorite proverb and lay some groundwork for you. Uh, If you've ever heard me teach on apologetics or worldviews, then you've heard me unpack this passage. This passage is very key to that. Proverbs chapter 1 Verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Church, God's word is true. If you do not fear the Lord, you cannot begin. You can't even begin to have knowledge. If you do not start with God then you cannot justify anything you think you believe to be true. For clarity's sake, you can believe in truth. You can believe things to be true. You can even be correct about the things you believe to be true. However, you cannot justify any truth you claim to know without starting at the fear of the Lord. Uh, For clarity's sake, this fear is a right reverence and respect for who God is. This fear is an acknowledgment that God is, that he exists, and therefore he is altogether magnificent and terrifying to the mind of mere men whom he has created. This fear is a believing into God as well. It is a proper love and belief in God. You do not love and respect that which you do not believe in. All the wisdom of Proverbs cannot benefit you as God intends it to, if you do not start right here at the beginning of knowledge. And so this is where we will start. Because God exists and he has all knowledge his knowledge is complete. It's exhaustive. There's nothing he does not know. He never learns. He's never surprised. He's never reacting. He is omniscient. This means that he cannot lie. He cannot error. And we, ma- mankind, his creation, are utterly dependent upon him as our source of truth. I, I do not simply mean believers are dependent. All humanity is dependent upon God as their source of truth and knowledge. Everything that has been created is fallible because it is omniscient. It is not sovereign. God is the only all-knowing, omniscient, and all-powerful, sovereign being that exists. God is the only self-sufficient being that exists, meaning he needs nothing besides himself to exist And to exist eternally. He always has been. All of us are dependent on something to exist. Um, I I wouldn't encourage you to do this, but if you stop eating or stop drinking water, well, you're going to find out how dependent you are on other things, right? All of the things that have being, that exist, are created by God. They are subservient to Him, and they are dependent upon Him. Since there is no other being that has exhaustive knowledge of all things then unless they get their knowledge from God, everything they claim to know can be proven wrong by what they do not know. This means they cannot justify the truth they believe to know apart from God. For example, uh, let's say you claim to know the height of this stand. And so you go, well, it's, it's five feet six inches but I could be wrong. I don't think it's five feet, guys, so don't take that literal, right? Um, Once you say, but I could be wrong, well, then do you truly know the size of the stand? If you cannot justify the claim you make, then you cannot say you know. If you can say about anything I could be wrong, then you cannot know that you're not claiming truth. You could be wrong. Um, You can... Play that out further. I I love to do this in my Apologetics series, but I don't have time today with this. But you could say, well, I used a measuring tape. Have you ever seen a measuring tape that was off? You know the little trick about the end of the measuring tape and when you pop it in or when you pop it out and why? So, I looked at it with my own eyes. We'll get to that in a second. But um, the reality is that unless you go to God as your source of truth, anything you do not know can prove what you think you know to be wrong. Therefore, you must receive your truth from someone who knows all things. The only one who knows all things is God. There are no others. So, if you cannot justify your truth, then your truth cannot be certain. And so, therefore, you don't actually have truth. You could be wrong. We have to start here because there is no more ultimate standard from which to start. All of your faculties are usually fairly reliable. Uh, praise God for this. He made them that way, and that's a good thing, right? Can you imagine if your eyes and ears and nose and your nerves like never worked like they're supposed to? That would be pretty frustrating. Um, in fact, I get to see that in our foster son with the cerebral palsy. He gets frustrated. He knows what he wants his legs to do, but his legs won't do it. Um, however, each one of us has heard something that we didn't actually hear. We've heard something that didn't actually make noise. Each one of us has felt something on our physical bodies that wasn't actually there. You, you've all slapped the bug you, you knew was crawling up your leg, only to find out that you just slapped your leg, right? Um, we've all seen things that weren't what we thought we were seeing, or weren't there at all in the first place. Therefore, your experience is not ultimate Each one of us has been fooled by optical illusions. We've had our eyes deceive us. We've had our nerves deceive us. We've had our ears deceive us. And so our experience does not equal truth. Just because you claim to have experienced something, it does not mean that it is true. The old adage, I saw it with my own eyes, can be convincing. But even if you saw something, your eyes have been tricked before. Therefore, they're not infallible. How do you know they're working right when you saw that thing? Essentially, unless you have exhaustive knowledge of all things, then you are getting either your truth from God, who does, or all the things that you think or believe to be true cannot be justified. And therefore, you cannot have truth. As a side note, you all believe in truth. Even those who deny it believe in it. At least you live like you do, right? That's because you're made in God's image, and you can't escape that reality. It's a beautiful thing. This is why the fear of the Lord is the beginning, the beginning of knowledge. Now, with that uh, brain teaser, let's go to my favorite chapter of Proverbs, chapter 16. I'm going to read chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. So if you have your Bibles out, open them up to Proverbs 16. The plans of the heart belong to man. But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps." This section of Proverbs 16 has applicable wisdom in in every verse, every word. Uh, Overall, it speaks a lot to the sovereignty of God and to the will of mankind. This section also has a theme that, that runs through it fairly clearly. Man plans his ways. He has a will. He makes decisions. But man is not sovereign. Those things that man does, he will be held accountable for. He is responsible. They are genuine desires, genuine wills. But man's desires will never override God, who is sovereign. Um, Surely Marilyn wanted to get up here and give announcements like she did in first service. But something changed outside of her control. And we trust the Lord. He is sovereign, right? What I want to do the rest of this morning through our sermon is to break down each verse and simply give you some practical application of those verses to chew on. Uh, It's such a fun book just to, to read it, to see the practicalness of it, and then chew on that. And how do I apply that to my life? So Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Mankind has a will. We make plans that are genuinely ours, and we are therefore held accountable for them. We have desires and we act upon them, whether in a positive or a negative fashion. And they do genuinely come from our hearts. We also have a limitation as to what we can will, what we desire, depending on the condition of our hearts. This can be a bit tricky, so follow along closely with me. God's word declares that we are either dead in sin and enslaved to sin, or alive in Christ and enslaved to righteousness, to Christ. What that means for our wills prior to salvation is this. Your desire is only and always for sin. You you don't desire righteousness. You are dead in your sin and enslaved to sin. If you are enslaved to sin, this does not mean that you do as much sin as you can. So if you're in here and you're not a believer, you're probably going, man, there's so many more worse things I could have done. Yes, you you could have. I'm not saying you couldn't have. Um, I'm saying that all you can do is sin. Even your most righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God because they're not done in faith. You're, You're desperate for salvation, right? Again, as the passage clearly states, God... Has authority over his creation. So even your most wicked desires you might want to do, and you may not be allowed, permitted by God to carry them out. God restrains evil every day. Praise God for that. Uh, Or things would be much, much worse. That being said, what most people stumble over here is that they think if God is sovereign and they are enslaved to sin, then how are they held accountable? Well, they're held accountable because their desires are genuine. They are under their federal head, Adam, and they truly desire, that's what they want to do, is the sin that they do. Now, if you want more information on that, feel free to hit me up after service. We we did a pretty lengthy teaching during our midweek series that really unpacks the will of man and the will of God and how all of that works together. Um, So hit me up afterwards and I'll see if I can get that for you. But um, because I don't have time for all of that unpacking today, I want to continue moving on. So let me show some verses from Scripture that speak to this truth, that you're either enslaved to sin or you're enslaved to Christ. Um, Just consider our passage at hand. The plans of the heart belong to man. So whether you are enslaved to sin or enslaved to Christ, your plans belong to you. They're yours. You're responsible for them, right? Uh, They're genuine desires of your heart, and therefore you're accountable for them. I, I, I was recently talking to an old student of mine and expressing my concern for this a cultural mentality that has really, uh, I, I really can see where it began in my generation, but it's also really, really being pushed forward now. And it is this mentality of victimhood. It's far too prevalent today. Church, teach your children that they are not victims, teach them that they are responsible for their actions, right? This false ideology of critical race theory that teaches you if you are a certain race, which should actually be called ethnicity, right? If you are a certain ethnicity, then you are a victim. And the problem with this ideology is that it does not help someone rightly process a world that is riddled with sin. They become stuck thinking everything that is wrong is due to everything else. It's never my fault. And if you can't control the will of others, but you somehow are convinced that it is the other's wills that are always controlling you and all of the things that are wrong are theirs, what hope do you have? The problem with this ideology is that it does not help someone handle the world that we live in. It leaves them no way out. This is not the truth of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this ideology, the the critical race ideology, no one can repent enough. No one can apologize enough. They have to be removed. Even when they're removed, they still want to attack them. And the only solution is to take those who are so-called victims and raise them to the level of the victimizer. So you're replacing the, the power structure. right? And then the people who said they were victims now become the ones that are inflicting the same thing that they're railing against. There's there's no answer for that, church. That's why it's such a wicked ideology. It does not honor the Lord. It does not fall in line with Scripture. It's a vicious cycle of f- false ideology, and there's no good news within it. Let's look at our next passage that speaks about being dead and enslaved to sin or enslaved to righteousness. Romans 6, 17, and 18. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I chose this verse because it's very clear that God's word declares that you are either a slave to sin, or, when he has saved you, a slave to righteousness. Um, Again, because I want to go through the rest of the Proverbs passages, we don't have time to fully unpack that and pull out all that Scripture says. Scripture says a lot about that. But here in the passage, you see both, right? You are once slaves of sin, but you have become obedient, and you're now slaves of righteousness. Uh, Neither one of those states do we get to not be responsible for our actions. They are your desires. You will be held accountable Um, Before I move on in Proverbs, I hope you clearly see that this passage makes that point, that there are two ways that our hearts are conditioned. We are either enslaved to sin or we are enslaved to righteousness. Practically speaking, we do what we want within our own hearts, and God is still sovereign. So whether you do the unrighteous thing from a heart that is not saved by Christ and enslaved to sin, or whether you do the righteous thing from a heart that is enslaved to Christ, enslaved to righteousness, um, we are accountable for our own actions, for our own desires. And God is still sovereign over all things, including our own hearts. Let's look at Proverbs 16, verse 2. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Simply said, whether you believe you are righteous or not, whether you have convinced yourself if you are good, maybe even you've convinced yourself that you are good with God. God has the final word. And again, as I said earlier, God's word is truth. Therefore, the word of God is the ultimate standard. This is true not just for Christians. You you have to hear this this morning. God's word is truth and the standard for all of creation. Sinner and saint alike are dependent upon God for the truth of his word, for the standard of what makes a person righteous or not, no matter how much they may deny it. Church, we, all of mankind, will be held accountable to God's perfect standard of righteousness. We find that only in Christ and his word. And this is why we do not put down the scriptures when we engage with a lost and sinful world. The lost and sinful world will be held accountable to God's truth, as it says in his word. You can see it in Romans 1. And we must bring that to bear upon their hearts while proclaiming the gospel truths from it, in hopes that God may grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. That that language is just common throughout Scripture. Unless you fear the Lord, you can't begin to have knowledge. God must grant you repentance, leading you to a knowledge of the truth. Uh, Just a cool side note, sorry. Practically speaking, we as believers should not be surprised when sinners believe that they are righteous, right? All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. Not being surprised reveals that we have read and understood the truths of God. Now, we can't just leave that there. It's not enough for me to go, okay, I'm not surprised sinners sin, and they think that they're righteous. Rather, we must boldly and lovingly proclaim the truth to them, even though they think that their ways are right. The Lord weighs the Spirit. The Lord is the arbiter of truth. Therefore, if their ways are not in line with God's Word, then out of love we must reveal that to them with the hope that God may grant them repentance and save them from their blindness. Do you tend to justify your actions even when the Spirit of the Lord convicts you? Husbands and wives, do you defend yourselves and your ways just because you, you, you hate not being right? You, you have to be right. Or do you go to God's word, and when you see that you are not in line with it, you repent of that, and you humbly ask for forgiveness and take the right step? You see, this is the practical application of wisdom from this passage. Obviously, we can apply it across a very broad spectrum, but let me bring the full weight of this passage to bear. If you are not weighing your ways according to God's truth, then you are likely fooling yourself, and you will not be uh, let off the hook, so to speak, because the Lord weighs the Spirit, and His truth prevails. Again, if you do not start with the fear of the Lord, you cannot begin to have wisdom in these things. Moving on, Proverbs 16, verse 3. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Church, this passage brings me uh, such relief in difficult times of decision-making. Uh, have you ever had some like really hard, difficult decisions, and you had to pick between one or two or three? This passage should, should bring you such relief in those circumstances, um, I, I know people at, who I dearly love that really struggle to make any decisions, like going to fast food, not just what place, but when we get there, what what item, right? Uh, oftentimes, they'll just ask you to pick something for them, because decisions can be overwhelming. Um, those types of decisions, even the small ones, can be very difficult to them, and I personally have faced, though it's, again, not the ultimate standard, right, what, what we face, but I've personally been faced with difficult decisions. Think about the major, major decisions in your life. Decisions about jobs, marriage, schools, or perhaps not school, trade work, career paths, children, retirements, where you live, move, don't move, buying a car, buying a home. All of these decisions have really massive ramifications, right? Uh, if they're not made wisely, many of these decisions can lead to destruction, not, not just for your life, but for generations behind you. right? The, the, your children might reap some of that that you have sown because you made a decision that was really heavy and it has lasting effects. So what do you do, church? That, that feels weighty. That doesn't, that doesn't feel like an easy thing. Well, you commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Now, as I said earlier, this is not the genre of literature where you want to take this as a promise. Um, particularly, you don't want to read this and go, well, if I commit this to the Lord, then the Lord has to give me this, right? Like, that's, don't, that's, a, bad, that's a bad idea. That doesn't usually fit in Scripture. Um, but what you do want to see is that if you commit your way to the Lord, and he opens the door or closes that particular door, what you're ultimately saying is that you trust him no matter what the outcome is. And if you're committing your way to him, then it doesn't matter what the outcome is. You have him. You trust him. He's good. He's faithful. You know that. You know he knows what you don't know. And so it's better. You want him to make that decision, right? God does this in either a positive way or a negative way. But even if it's in a negative way, you trust the Lord and are committed to him, so you know that this is for your good. This verse goes hand in hand with the man making plans in his heart, and the Lord bringing the answer. Christian, do you see how freeing this is? If you are making major plans, weigh them against God's word, see if they are in line, and then take the steps to see what God does. If he shuts those plans down, praise God for his goodness, for his wisdom, for his protection. You should know that those things were not the best things for you. And if he allows them to move forward, then you continue to commit them to him and trust him. Maybe he only allows them to move forward for a short time. Don't be undone when he changes that, right? He is sovereign over all things. This really, I I said this such a freeing thing, this frees you up. To make these decisions rooted in God's truth and to trust the outcome to the Lord. Now, one word of caution. This does not mean that we make decisions in a flippant manner. Flippancy would not qualify as committing your work to the Lord. So it's not like, well, if the Lord's sovereign, I'll just A, B, OK, I'll PP, am fine. Well, no, there's, there's work to be done on your behalf, right? We should take our time, we should consider the positives and the negatives. Most importantly, we should consider if these actions will fall in line with God's truth. We should also apply the wisdom of Scripture and seek the counsel of others who are wise so that we are not allowing our flesh to deceive us in a decision that may have us blinded really by our own desire. Um, I'm sure everybody does it, but particularly I know men can struggle here. We get this desire, we want this thing, and before I even talk to somebody, I have a million reasons why it's the right thing to do. Right. Um, so when you talk to me and you're like, have you thought about it? Oh, yeah, yeah, I thought about that. And this and this and this. Right. Um, it's easy in our flesh to desire something so much that we don't actually invite in the wisdom of others. And typically it goes really bad for us when we walk those things out. Right. Uh, God's word is so good, church. Oh, the practicality of the wisdom of Proverbs. It is so helpful and so freeing in so many ways. The way I say this to those in my discipleship is do all that you can for the thing that you're trying to make decisions on. Take it to the Lord. Take it to his word. If it falls in line, if it's a good thing, uh, if it doesn't affect ministry, it doesn't affect Sabbath, it it doesn't affect the things God's called you to, and you've got two really, really great options. Well, then if you've done that work, pick one and see what the Lord does. They're both great. Maybe they have some drawbacks. Maybe they have some pluses. As long as they fall in line with what God has called you to do, Christian, and what His Word says, then pick one and, and move. Take action. The Lord is over it. And praise God for this church. You are free. If you do that, and there's consequences down the road, the Lord is using those for His purposes. That weight is not on you. If you don't take those steps and don't do that work and you're just flippant or you become wise in your own eyes and you don't invite counsel and you don't go to God's word, then you know that you will have yourself to blame to be accountable for those actions. This is beautiful. So if I just honor the Lord and I commit my things to him uh, and I strive to honor him in all that I do, I can make these decisions and I'm freed. I'm freed from the weight of the consequences, right? Right? It should be a beautifully freeing thing for you to see in God's word. If you are truly committed to the Lord, then you know his ways are best and you rest in his sovereignty. Proverbs 16 verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. This truth should also bring us peace on so many fronts. Is there wickedness in the world around us? Of course, it is rampant. It is all over the place. We live in a sin-filled, fallen world. Just, just consider the, the kind of wickedness that would have women like celebrating the murder of the baby in the womb, and, and some of the protests and the grotesque things that women are doing to declare that it is about their sovereignty. Only God is sovereign. So is the world out of control? Well, no. God is in control. God is always in control. No matter how much wickedness and sin seems like it is prevailing, no matter how dark, uh, how scary, how uncertain things may be, the Lord is on the throne. He is in control of all things. Why does a passage like this bring us peace? Because we know God is in control. We don't need to worry about the future, which we have no control over and no knowledge of. We have a God who does that. Uh, He doesn't worry, but he has the knowledge of the future. God has his purposes, even for those who are wicked. So when there are unjust wars and unjust leaders, when there is turmoil all around you, Christian, God has a purpose for it, and he is trustworthy. His plan and his will cannot and never will be thwarted. God's word even declares that the wicked he created for condemnation will serve the purpose of showing us his grace, his mercy, and showing creation his power and wrath and authority. Romans 9, verse 22 through 24. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath "...prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory, for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles." Church, did you see what God's word said? God created everything for his glory. He created vessels of wrath for destruction, To show his wrath and his power. He also created them so that we who are saved would more fully know his grace. As the text shows us, so that we may know the riches of his glory. As our Proverbs verse declares, God has created everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of destruction. So, practically speaking, why should this verse bring us who are in Christ comfort? Well, when we look at the world around us, the wickedness of our own country, we could become afraid. We, we could very easily become unsettled, uh, obsessed with worry, anxious. How, what are we going to do? Wickedness just is, is coming from all sides. Or we can rest in the perfect sovereign plan of God, Knowing that He is in control, even of the wicked. And we can make wise choices to prepare for the future with as much as we can see of it. We don't just go, well, God's in control, I'll just wait and see what happens. Well, as much as you can see, God's given you eyes and ears to use. You look ahead as much as you can and you prepare in whatever way you can. But if those things come to fruition or don't, we trust in the Lord, we rest in Him, we're not undone. We can rest in God's sovereignty for the things that we cannot see. This is truly a walking by faith and not by sight. Are you overwhelmed or surprised at the wickedness of our country? There's no need for that, church. We know the fallen world will be wicked. And we know that God will take care of this for his glory and for our good. Are you afraid that wicked people will get away with wicked things? How many of you have been unjustly judged because man worried that injustice, or sorry, that justice would not be met. You've heard about it over and over again. Uh, um, in, in some cases, a, a court makes a judgment about a person they end up serving 20, 30, 40 years in prison, only to later find out that that person wasn't actually guilty of the crime. And then they are set free. Well what happened? Likely, you had people who were so worried about justice not happening, That they made an unjust judgment, and in that process they doubled the injustice that they were so worried about. We should make balanced and wise judgments in cases that require it. But it is better to follow God's standard for unbiased judgment and not punish someone when the burden of proof for their guilt is not met than it is to punish someone who is not actually guilty. In the end, no one will get away with their guilt. They will either answer for all that they did to the Lord in condemnation and eternal suffering, or the Lord Jesus will have paid for those sins with his very own blood. God will have his justice. It is always met and met perfectly. So we do not need to be concerned, uh, overly concerned, about that. We should not make false judgments because we are overly concerned that justice won't happen or won't take place. We, <clears throat> Sorry, as a very important side note, if you are tempted to think that it is unfair that someone will go free because Christ chose to take their punishment upon himself, then you're Right. It's not fair that the only one who was perfect would take punishment for others at all, ever. He's the only one who was treated unfairly. If the wages of sin are death, and we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then we deserve that, not Christ, right? And when we think in this way, we really do uh, condemn ourselves. If we forget Or if we think that we want God to only forgive those who we think deserve forgiveness, then we would probably fail to meet our own standard and we would lack God's forgiveness. Church, we need not fear the wickedness around us. We need not fear when it appears that the guilty got off. God has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of destruction. In fact, our next verse adds some clarity to this and and actually changes our focus. Proverbs 16.5 Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Consider this. as As I read it, I thought, wow. If God will make sure to punish arrogance, then rest assured the murderer and the thief will also be punished. Justice will be had, right? Now the point of this verse is to warn against being wise in your own eyes. At this point, I thought it might be prudent to ask you if the truths that we've discussed already, are they rubbing you wrong in any way? Do you feel like, man, I don't know if I like that, or or, why would God do it that way, Or, or what about this? Isn't there a better option? And the reason that I want to ask you, I really do want you to kind of think about that, is because I want to point you to this gracious warning from God in his passage. Rather than becoming maybe angry or unsettled by these truths, rather than thinking you might have a better way or or believing your thoughts to be higher or better than God's, turn to his word and see it as truth and, and repent for where you have been in disagreement. When you consider the truths laid out in the previous four verses of our Proverbs 16 Uh, passages, you can realize that God's wisdom through Solomon would know that the sinful inclination of the heart of man is prone to rail against such things. Therefore, he, God, graciously gives us this warning so that we will check our arrogance against his word and turn from our own thoughts to trusting what he has declared. Think about the truths that we've seen so far. A man plans his ways, but God is sovereign over the outcome. Uh, A man thinks that he's right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. When man honors God with, with their decisions, God provides the proper outcome, even if it's not what they had hoped or wanted. God created everything for its purpose. He even created the wicked for the day of destruction. He has a purpose in creating them. These truths can rail against our sinful pride, the, the, the pride that likes to take glory for what God has done. Like, no, 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 that was my decision. I worked hard for that. I earned that, right? Um, so it's fitting here that God would lovingly warn us not to be deceived by our own pride, our own self righteousness. Those things will be punished, for they do not rightly consider the difference between man and God, between creation and creator. Arrogance is a posture we take when we think we are right or our ways are better in contrast to what God has declared to to be truth. As the Lord says, this is an abomination to him, which is a pretty strong word, right? And it is merciful of God to tell us this truth so that we know what it is and we know to avoid it. Um, It is also merciful of God to warn those who refuse to bow their knee to him. On the day of judgment, no one will be able to claim ignorance as a way of getting out of God's wrath. God will have his justice. It will be met, either in Christ or in the sinner. Um, As I read this, I thought, man, I have this helpful illustration of God's gracious warning to us. Um, Think of it like this. If you've ever had a boss who had expectations uh, and requirements for you but didn't communicate those things to you, and then when you didn't do them, you got in trouble, then you'll understand why it's gracious that the Lord communicates his expectations, right? How frustrating is it when your boss is mad, they're, they're maybe even you miss a promotion or something because you didn't do X, Y, or Z, but your boss never said, these are the expectations. This is what we require you. This is what the role of the job is, right? Um, on the flip side, I've heard people complain about uh, micromanaged type of bosses. But I, for one, am very, very thankful when the, when the person that is over me makes very clear what their expectations are. This helps me not only to rightly fulfill those expectations, but to strive to exceed them. Um, when I exceed the expectations of my employer, I honor the Lord, and it's for my good. And so it's a joy for me. I, I like to know what is required. What, what are those things? How can I strive to meet them or exceed them? Uh, it is so much better than to stand before the Lord one day and go, Oh, you never told me. God goes, No, I, I made it very clear. I made it clear in the things that I created, even if you've never heard Scripture. My creation made it clear. You did not honor me, right? And so there won't be an excuse. Um, therefore, when God lays out clear expectations, as he has here in our Proverbs 16 passage, I, for one, am very thankful for it. Uh, and I'd encourage you to have that same mindset. Proverbs 16.6 by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. What does God mean when His word declares that by steadfast love and sorry, by steadfast love, iniquity is atoned for? Obviously, our, our minds have to go to the steadfast love of Christ, who is our atonement. Steadfastness means resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering. When we consider that Jesus was fully God and fully man, then we can uniquely consider the challenges of his humanity in taking on the sins of his people. The reality that he was the only sinless man to have ever lived even adds more weight to the sacrifice of his human nature on our behalf for our Sins. We cannot fully comprehend the weight of that because none of us are sinless. None of us have ever been treated that unjustly, right? The love of God the Father and God the Son Jesus was steadfast. It was dutifully firm and unwavering, and we therefore only have atonement for our sin in Christ's finished work. The love of God the Holy Spirit was steadfast, and therefore he applies the atonement of God the Son to those whom God the Father has chosen to save before the foundation of the world. By the steadfast love of God, we are redeemed. We have atonement. Praise God for this, church. If the previous wisdom literature that we've looked at wasn't enough for us to see that we are indeed sinners and in need of a Savior— that we're wise in our own eyes, that we can become haughty in our hearts, that, that, that even though we have a will and a desire, oftentimes it's not in line with God's. And even though we want to be sovereign, we aren't. If that's not enough, <laughs> then see that you don't even meet your own expectations of righteousness. You need someone to meet them for you, you need a Savior. If God had not been resolute in his decision to save a people from every tribe and tongue and nation, then you and I would be without hope. If Jesus had not been firm and unwavering in his aim to honor God the Father and to love us his beloved, then the blows of the whip and the pain of crucifixion may have been too much. If God the Holy Spirit had not been steadfast in the regeneration of our dead hearts, then we would still be dead in sin and enslaved to sin, and have no desire for Christ, nor the fear of the Lord. But as the Scripture declares, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Steadfast love indeed has brought atonement. Christ has paid in full through his blood for all of the sins of all of those that he died for, past, present, and future. Oh, that you would turn from your self-righteousness and trust in Christ and Christ alone. Only then will his atonement be proven to be for you. Only then would you enter into eternal life with the treasure of your heart ever before you, namely Jesus himself. There's also a very practical application to this. By your steadfast love, you have the ability to overlook sins of others, to make a, a, a humanly speaking atonement for them, right? If you've been married for a few years, Lord willing, your love is unwavering. And therefore, when your spouse fails you, you overlook it. You take, you take the pain of that sin, and you continue loving your spouse. You do that because Christ has done that for you, right? Right? So there's a very practical side of that as well. But notice the second part of the verse in Proverbs. It says, "By the fear of the Lord one turns away from evil." Now, as I said in the beginning of our time, apart from salvation, no one will fear the Lord. It makes sense then that both of these phrases would be put together in this proverb. This fear is a love and a respect that only comes through truly knowing God through salvation. Christian, when you have been saved, when you rightly see all that God has atoned for you because of your sin through his great love for you, then you see that steadfast love of God and you fear the Lord and you turn from evil. It changes your heart's desires. It causes that new heart within you to have new affections that turn from sin because you love and fear the Lord. No one turns from evil apart from this. No one fears the Lord apart from salvation. It's cool that he put those two verses together or those two phrases together. Proverbs 16:7 When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. This is a truly amazing truth. When you strive to do all that you can to honor God with what he's given you, he'll make even your enemies to be at peace with you. Now again, this is wisdom literature, so don't take that as a promise in every and all circumstances. Sometimes your enemies won't be at peace with you, and God has a purpose in that for his glory and for your good. But what this wisdom literature is declaring is that if you commit your ways to the Lord, then in most circumstances, even your enemies will be at peace with you. You'll likely have less enemies if you have committed your work to the Lord, right? Um, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Uh, I've seen this come to fruition in my life and in many testimonies here in the church. Uh, people who had jobs where the boss was an enemy fe- felt like co-workers were just horrible. And then the Lord saves them, and their life is, is different and, and changed by God, by his work in them. And some of their... their Some of their enemies are now their best friends, right? The Lord is amazing in what he does, and he's amazing that his truth uh, rings clear. It always produces what it declares it will produce. So, moving on to Proverbs 16, verse 8. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. This is a really, really practical one, right? Almost all of us who have ever had to work to earn something understand this. All of you know this to be true. If you honor God and you are in relationship with him, um, and that has perhaps not led you to great worldly riches, you still know that the riches of that right relationship with your creator are far better than anything you could have gained in an unrighteous life. Those who are greedy for unjust gain are constantly looking for their hearts to be satisfied. It's seen that even when they get the thing they're chasing after unjustly, they want the next thing and the next thing. It's never enough. It is not enough because they have been created by God, and the only thing that can fill that void they aim to fill with unjust gain is God himself. Therefore, it is better to have God and not riches than unjust riches and not God very practical, right? Proverbs sixteen nine: The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. This is a, a bookend of sorts to what we've already read in the previous verses of this Proverbs chapter. It is another sweet reminder of the sovereignty of God over the lives of us, his created beings. This truth, again, should bring us comfort. It should be a warning to us as well. When we plan our ways and our hearts, we ought to do so with the utmost desire to honor God and all that he has revealed to us in his word. If we do this, then when God establishes our steps, we have nothing to be worried about or concerned about. We know God is trustworthy and good. He's proven it time and time again. But supremely, he has proven it through the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. This is also a warning to those who think that they can plan their ways and need not worry about God or acknowledge him. You may have convinced yourself that God is not real, though you know that that is a lie. Even still, God will establish your steps, and he will have justice for your sin. It is my utmost prayer that God would grant you faith, that you would trust in him. But until this is the case, it is loving for me to warn you of these realities as God warns us here in his word. Church, there is so much wisdom and good to be seen in the book of Proverbs. If if you haven't spent time in it, I truly can't encourage you enough to read through it. Read a chapter a day. It's not hard to do. It's so edifying, so good for you. Um, Really is one of my favorite books to read over and over again. Uh, It seems like it's just never exhaustive in what it's teaching you. Uh, With that, I want to turn to my favorite verse in Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. <clears throat> Growing up, I always thought I was a pretty lucky kid. Um, I had been given a lot of natural gifts for like sports and games and things like that. Um, but when it came to games of chance, like uh, Yahtzee or Farkle, um, I always I, I feel like I regularly won them. I, I remember winning way more of those games than I ever remember losing. And that's interesting, because typically when you lose, it hurts differently, and that's the thing you remember, right? And so I would often say, like, I'm a pretty lucky guy. Um, I saw this as luck, but God's Word declares that there is no such thing. Every time that I wish someone good luck now, I think back to the words of the Lord here, and I go, Oh, wait, I need those words back. That was silly. There's no such thing. Um, In fact, I said it after my prayer this morning, and it caught me. Even then, I was like, ah, knucklehead. Um, (laughs) Now, uh, in case you aren't familiar with what a lot is, it would be similar to our dice today. Not exactly the same, but it would be a multi-sided thing with uh, either names or uh, something on each side. And the people of God in the Old Testament, you've seen it happen, they would cast lots, and whatever the, the, their dice, their lots turned up, then they would know that that decision was from the Lord, and they would take those steps. Um, I remember feeling like when they're casting lots in Scripture as a kid, like, that's, that's weird, that's kind of like, I don't know, it feels like witchcraft or, or, or something odd. Um, what I didn't know is what they knew, that the Lord is sovereign over all things that the lot is cast into thy lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. They weren't doing that in a way that was dishonoring, something they truly didn't know, and they trusted the Lord to use the lots to help them make the decision he wanted for them. Church, God has left nothing to chance, as if there ever was such a thing. Because God is sovereign, omniscient, eternal, good, loving, He cannot just wind things up and let them go and just see how they turn out. Because God declares the end from the beginning, he is sovereignly over all things and all time. There is nothing left to chance. There is no such thing as good luck. Just consider the uncountable number of man's choices That, if God were not sovereign, could have prevented the Messiah from coming through Adam and Eve's offspring. If God were not sovereign, he could not have promised Adam and Eve that their offspring would crush the head of the serpent. If things were up to chance, or man's fallible and often wicked wills, then our Savior would not have come the way the prophets declared that he would have come. If God has not declared the end from the beginning, then we would have no confidence in anything else that God has declared. But hear this. You can have confidence. You you must. Our Lord never fails. He is sovereign. Even the dice that you roll will only turn up the numbers that they turn up as the Lord has sovereignly decided. There is no part of this life that is left to chance. God is present and working out his holy will for his good pleasure, for his glory, and for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So what have you to fear, Christian? If God concerns himself with the dice numbers, then you must know he is aware of your circumstances. He is not absent. We live indeed in a sin-filled and fallen world, there's much evil around us and uncertain circumstances to our eyes. These are un- uncertain times, the things that uh, my generation and my parents' generation say they haven't seen in different ways. seems like every generation has something that's massive and happening, right? There's much evil around us, but the Lord has not lifted his hand off of things, and things are not out of his control. Trust in him and remind your heart of these truths. See the gracious wisdom of his word given to you and lean in. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Church, go to God's word. See these truths and know that God is in control. Lay down your worries, lay down your fears, Strive to honor Him and Him alone for all that He has done for you and trust the rest to Him. It's such a freeing thing. Praise God for that. In closing, if you are here this morning and you do not know God, if you do not fear the Lord, then then it truly is my most earnest prayer that the Lord would grant you repentance, that you would turn from your sin, and faith that you would trust in the finished work of Christ Jesus alone. You cannot be righteous on your own. You cannot earn God's favor. No man can put God in his debt. And you know you're a sinner. I've said it many times, but no one needs me to convince them that they're sinners. You do not even meet your own standard of righteousness. The very thing you yourself have required of others, you yourself have failed to meet. I don't need to convince you of that. And it's my hope that the Lord would be at work revealing those truths to you, showing you your sin, and showing you that there is indeed a Savior. By steadfast love, we have atonement, and that is only in Christ. Christian, what is it about God's sovereignty that perhaps you have forgotten? What is it about his providence and his omniscient rule that, that you are not keeping in the front of your mind? Why are you so full of worry so full of dread, so full of turmoil. The Lord is in control of all things. Strive to honor him, be in his word, know what he is required of us, and trust him with the outcome of your life, your children's life, your jobs, your world around you. He's in control. He has proven that he is good again, if nothing more, and I don't think he has ever proven it in a greater way than through the sacrifice of his son on the behalf of sinners. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the gracious way that you have revealed yourself to us through it, uh, through different genres, uh, through, through different writers, uh, all of these carried along by the Holy Spirit, writing your word, your truth, your revelation for us. is such a sweet, sweet gift as we dive into your word, Lord. We are desperate for the illumination of it by your Holy Spirit, that we see it for what it is, that we rightly understand it so that we can honor you. Well, we pray for your spirit to be at work in us, to, to be guiding our thoughts, be guiding our desires, to uh, overrule the wickedness that we are still at war with in our uh, flesh. And we pray, Lord, for, for those here who maybe do not know you, who have not turned from their sin and trusted in you. Pray, Lord, that you would be at work. We know that you are the only one who can provide salvation. And so we ask that you would be doing that. We ask that your gospel would be proclaimed clearly. It is because of Christ that we can pray. Amen.